from the Bardock College. While a few important NPCs have been granted the descriptor of Witch, like Tasha or the Symbol, actual classes have been pretty sparse. There were a few classes in the early days in Dragon Magazine and a Witch Kit in AD&D 2nd Edition. The third-party Mayfair product, Rollades Witches, presented a 2nd Edition Witch class with 9 subclasses. 3rd Edition saw 5 official prestige classes, 2 based on the Witches of Rashomon from the Forgotten Realm setting. From third parties, there was the Quintessential Witch from Mongoose Publishing and the Witch's Handbook from Green Ronin, both presenting the Witch classes. Pathfinder even stepped in with her own core Witch class from the Advanced Player's Guide. Even in D&D 5th Edition, most Witch options have been third-party offerings, including a Wizard subclass from Schwab Entertainment and a Witch class from Cobalt Press's Deep Magic Volume 2. I guess the concept of an official Witch class in D&D is just... Cursed? Who writes these puns? I swear to God, I sound like a bad spell gone wrong. Also, happy Halloween. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D haunts our dreams, always lurking just beyond sight in the shadows. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. In 2021, they made me head Gnome, which I always forget to tell people when I tell them <laughs> I work for Gnome Stew. Like, I am my own boss. You are. You're, you, you are the, the, the top Gnome. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Jared, the review Gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, WhatDoIKnowJR.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. And I actually have a review up on Gnome Stew recently. You do? The Cthulhu review? Uh, Cthulhu Awakens. Yes. Very eventful uh, late summer, so. Yeah, yeah. All right, so after we look at the games that we're running, or not, in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about our favorite scary monsters. Then we'll have some recommendations on D&D related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. Yeah, about that campaign journal. Uh, we're in a little bit of a drought over here. But don't get me wrong. I'm playing lots of games. I had a lot of games at Gamehole Con. Uh, <laughs> I think over the course of the convention, I played eight different games. It's just none of it was D&D because we have D&D at home. <laughs> Hopefully this coming weekend, I will get to play my buddy's Night's Dark Terror game, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Things have been a little crazy in all corners of my life right now. So, But I believe you did play a 5e SRD derived game at GameholeCon. Yes. <laughs> I played Everyday Heroes, uh, specifically Pacific Rim. Nice. Which was Let Me Punch a Kaiju in the Face, <laughs> which was awesome. That is awesome. I have no gaming going on until November. So, you know, that'll be my birthday gift. <laughs> I have gaming again. I mean, hopefully we'll get to play uh, the Midgard campaign next week. Uh, yes, but by that time, it'll already be November. So, yeah, it'll be November as soon as Halloween is done. <laughs> and there's supposed to be snow. Like I looked at the weather today and the weather says snow on Halloween. And I'm like, screw you, Mother Nature. I mean, I know we're screwing things up down here, but come on. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Moving on into our Dungeon Master's Workshop, one of the things that makes monsters fun is the fact that they scare the crap out of people. 
Uh, with that having been said, we thought we'd take this time to look at what we think makes a scary monster and talk about some of our favorite scary D&D monsters. So, moving right on, in general, what do you think makes a scary monster? Um, so, one of my first things is I like monsters that have a creepy appearance, but a creepy appearance in a way that is really easy to describe to the players, mm-hmm. which is not to say that there aren't really weird, messed up things that I like trying to describe, but man, is it difficult sometimes. <laughs> I was thinking about like the um, the three five, you know, the uh, morgues, the undead that have the tongue that comes out of them. That's really easy to describe that it's an undead with a giant long tongue that reaches 10 feet. <laughs> I also like creatures that that kind of play on traditional fears, things that lurk in the dark that you can't quite see, you know, um, stuff that you're already afraid of. And we just package it in a monster instead of your normal fears. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the other thing that we're all naturally a little bit wary of is something that can hide its true nature or defy immortality, like, you know. Something that doesn't die when it's supposed to. <laughs> I think that, that, and this is all very vague and nuanced. It can be applied to a lot of different things. I think there has to be a degree of uncertainty when facing it. Mm-hmm. The players have to have a degree of, I'm not sure what this is. I don't know what this does. Or that you do start to get a feel for what it does and that is dangerous and it scares you. Mm-hmm. Along that line, it the whatever the monster is, its powers aren't known or are very hard to defend against. I'll contradict this when we get to my list of <laughs> monsters, but it has to do things that aren't just maim and yeah. hurt somebody. You know, there has to be more to it. There's more about what it does that is terrifying than just it can hit you really hard. Yeah, I definitely agree. I did realize something as we started talking about this topic and we both wanted to talk about scary monsters and all of this stuff. I don't know that the audience knows that both of us, if you give us a fallback genre from D&D, it's probably going to be like uh, monster hunting. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love I love me some monster of the week mm-hmm. and Vason and others where uh, the characters are all out there hunting the thing that goes bump in the night. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that's never too far from our minds anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what story elements make for a scary monster? Um, I like origins a lot of times that are kind of tied to some kind of classic tragedy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw out the the poster child in D&D for this, but, you know, Strahd von Zarovich and, you know, not being able to marry the woman that he loved because she married his brother. So he makes a pact with death and that's how he becomes a vampire. It's like Strahd is a terrible person, but all of that stuff is understandable that leads up to him becoming what he is. It's like your heart breaks a little for the bad guy because like, oh, that's mm-hmm. that's a really raw deal, man. But <laughs> at the same time, why you got to go that way? Why you got to go so hard? Oh, yeah. And, you know, Lord Soth is another great example. You know, you had this guy that, you know, you could stop the cataclysm, but then all of these people are going to reveal that you may have done away with your wife so that you could marry this other woman. And you want to ruin your reputation or you want to save the world. He's a, still a terrible person, but there is an understandable underlying, you know, tragic thing to their uh, origins there and then of course there's always the you know something that just makes you you know realize something that is very uncomfortable even this is i mean this is probably one of the simplest things but even like think about star wars when the millennium falcon flies into the space slug's mouth like just that idea that you slowly realize this is not a cave that we're in (laughs) (laughs) 
I think as far as story elements, and I mentioned this previously in What Makes for a Scary Monster, but I think the danger needs to be hard to defend against. Mm -hmm. One of the issues we've run into with D&D is there are a lot of mechanics around combat, around, you know, how you do things. And that can sometimes take a little bit of the mystery away from things. There are people out there who say you cannot run a horror game in D&D for these reasons. It's hard to build that level of suspense when everyone knows if I hit it hard, if I roll a 20, I hit it, right? And that can be a little difficult to deal with when you're running D&D and you want to go for scary. Mm -hmm. Not impossible. It is possible to do scary in D&D. I have done it several times. <laughs> in fact, uh, one of my players regularly jokes that all games are Cthulhu games because <laughs> there's always some unknowable horror out there. <laughs> like, I don't quite agree with that, but I understand where he's coming from when he says that. Yeah. Um, so I think that the danger needs to be hard to defend against it, that there needs to be tension and there needs to be stakes. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of things that can make the scary monsters really scary. Yeah. Honestly, when you think about in, let's say, Lord of the Rings, when Frodo gets stabbed with the, the Morgul blade, even once they save him from that, from that point on in the story, he is afflicted with this just melancholy that he cannot really recover from mm -hmm. afterwards. Like that is something that changed him forever. And that's a scary thing. Like it's not going to kill him. But he's never going to be the same guy that he was before that attack happened. Yeah. And it, it can be a little hard to achieve that type of thing in a D&D &D game because the characters are supposed to be heroes. They're supposed to be able to bounce back from adversity really quickly so they can continue on with the adventure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get around this by working with your players to say, OK, this is the tone of game we're going for, which means some of these things may not be as easy to recover from you know like that there may be some lingering effects but it has to be something you broach with your players ahead of time because if you try and do this without talking to them it's going to be very frustrating for them especially if they understand how the game works and like mm -hmm. no i should be able to make a save and keep going this shouldn't be a lingering effect that bothers me so you have to work with your players on that so what game mechanics make for a scary monster I'm going to reorder some of the things I was going to say just because you brought up a really good point at the end of the last thing you said. There is a game mechanic that is really good for expressing some of the stuff that we almost never use, and that is writing a new trait for your character that reflects a change that happened to them. Hmm. I think part of the problem with that is traits are all kind of tied into that fuzzy like, yeah, we kind of use traits to award inspiration if we remember to. <laughs> But even at that, though, just having that on the character sheet where you write this trait down and, you know, there are, let's say, five important things about you. And now there's six important things about you because you wrote this new trait down. That might just be enough to remind you this thing happened and it's never going to be completely you know, reversed. And it is something that you can remember to role play as an element once you write it down as a trait. Not quite that, but I know I had a couple of players lean into uh, so in the Depths of Zendrick campaign, when they were crossing the ocean, they were attacked by, I can't remember the name of the monsters. They were a third party monster. They were like, it was my alien scene on the boat because uh -huh. the, the, the monsters had planted these seeds and they were coming in from the, the, the shadow, the shadow fell. Mm -hmm. And they'd had a couple of other instances where they had brushed up against stuff from the shadow fell. So one of my players leaned into this and he ended up. Uh, taking a feat that kind of was built off of the idea that his exposure to the Shadowfell 
had changed him. I've noticed a lot in uh, third party supplements, especially like um, Cobalt Press has done a few other progression tracks that are similar to fatigue. Like they have one for if you're exposed to the plane of shadows, there's another one that's like Mm -hmm. if you're exposed to like mythos energies and how it starts to warp and twist you a little bit. So that is another neat thing that you can do is having those progression tracks where, you know, I'm probably not too bad off until I get two or three of these, but I am going down that road of something being bad in the future. Yeah. This part, I think, kind of dovetails with the story elements, but I really love monsters that if you kill them, you can end the encounter, but they're not going away. This ghost haunts this place. If you reduce it to zero hit points, it's gone tonight. Yeah. (laughs) If you come back here tomorrow, it's back. You know, I I like monsters like that where you still have to, if you really want to put that ghost to rest, you need to find out why it is an unquiet spirit. But yeah, sure. Go ahead and, you know, try and cut away all of his ectoplasm every night (laughs) at the same time. And I mean, that is something, again, with that can be a little difficult to manage in D&D is is having a recurring big bad because, you know, if your players kill it, it's supposed to be dead. You don't want to take that away from your players, but you also (laughs) wanted a big bad. And now you don't have it because your players defeated it. And how do how do I do it? It's it's a ghost. It'll just it dissipates. It's gone for today, but it'll come back tomorrow (laughs) or it's a lich. You killed its body, but it's going to reform because you don't know where its phylactery is. You know, these types of things. That's what I was going to say. I think that's part of why liches became pretty popular in D&D because they are very much a boss monster. They're they're genius level spellcasters. And also you can keep having them come back until your players figure out where he's got his phylactery hidden. Yep. Um, The other thing that I like that I don't see enough of is when a monster can inflict a condition like frightened or something. And if someone has that condition, they now either have access to a new ability or one of their other abilities is worse. And I like that combination of mechanics. Yeth hounds do that when they when you are afraid of a yeth hound. If it bites you, it does the piercing damage from the bite. Plus, you take additional psychic damage because you're already afraid of this horrible thing. <laughs> and I like that kind of synergy in the uh, in the rules. Yeah, that type of stuff is fun. There's plenty of mechanics that do things like instead of just doing damage, they apply a condition or they diminish a character in some way or. You know, temp- most of this is temporary, but it's still like it's a type of thing that if you're the player and you know this is a tough combat and you get hit with something that's going to make you roll at disadvantage for the rest of the encounter. Oh, man, that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, is, is a GM, you don't want to abuse this stuff. You want to use it judiciously so your players aren't afraid to do things in the game. But at the same time, if you're going for frightening, this is some cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, not too long ago in our campaign. We just had like the fight with either the dream wraiths or the night hag. Both of those are things that if someone in the party falls asleep, they can do much nastier stuff than they can if you stay awake. Yeah. So that was a fun thing to play with it. And people like trying to decide, should I keep hitting this thing or should I wake them up before it does something terrible to them? (laughs) Yeah. So let's move into the best part of this episode. (laughs) Let's talk about our favorite scary monsters from D&D. What are your favorite scary monsters and why do you enjoy them? I'm going to be boring with my first one, but I love vampires. <laughs> I mean, I love vampires as a D&D threat because they are one of those things where it, it is one of those instances where you can knock them down to zero hit points. And if you didn't cut their head off or stab them through the heart, they go to zero hit points and then their mist disperses. And then you have to find out where their coffin is at. Yep. 
So it does become that whole like, you know, I need to find where their coffin is at or else this guy is going to keep coming back and biting me every night and I don't want to be bitten anymore. (laughs) As a side note, when you run a vampire, make sure you look at everything because there are resistances and other things that Mm -hmm. the last time I went up against a vampire and it wasn't Jared. Uh, the last time I went up against a vampire, the GM kind of forgot about a bunch of things and we took him out pretty easily. And we realized afterwards we should not have been able to do that. But yeah, I've always I've always had a soft spot in my heart for vampires. And um, it's a soft spot that would easily take a, a stake. So if I turn into a vampire, you, you wouldn't have a hard time getting rid of me, I guess is what I'm saying here. So <laughs> so one of my favorites is the Oblex. <laughs> uh, the Oblex came out, I believe, in... Uh, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Mm-hmm. It's actually got a little bit of an interesting history behind the creation of the monster because it was created as a response to a Make-A-Wish Foundation request from a sick child. Uh, the designer worked together with the the child to come up with this monster, and it basically consumes. It's a slime. It's a like a like an ooze, and it consumes memories. And creates echoes of the people whose memories it has eaten. I terrified the heck out of my players <laughs> with the Oblex spawn, which is the lowest level version of this. They face them as, I think, second level characters. And after that, they were forever terrified of this thing. And in a later, a later session, when they were high enough level that they could have easily taken it on, they ran. <laughs> they ran rather than face this thing. Because it basically, they knew that it just ripped a memory out of somebody's mind and then it would create these shadows and echoes of the memory and the person and just, they're really good monsters. They're definitely worth exploring. Yeah, I love the story behind them being able to do all that creepy stuff. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice, like, even if something just does damage, it's nice if there is a good story behind what the damage represents. Yeah, and I I like, I, I had my players like, give me like memories from their childhood or something like, and I'm like, does she feel this slipping away? And they're like, that's terrifying. Ange. why would you do this to us? Because it's undermining their sense of who they are. <laughs> it's an, it is a true existential threat. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so my next one is a fairly traditional D and D monster, but I don't think people play it up as a scary thing as much as just like a weird brute. A lot of times, and that is the slotty. I love the idea that you have the red slots that can inject an egg into you that will gestate and basically alien you. <laughs> Anything like that's terrifying. <laughs> and then the blue can like just stab you and your cells begin to mutate until you turn into another into another slot. These are great, creepy monsters that you could, you know, these are great horror movie monsters. But I think people get a certain idea in their heads when they read toad and they don't actually go out and look at what a toad really looks like or think about what it would look like if a toad was six feet tall and had like bone spurs sticking out of its arms. (laughs) And I also think there's a little bit to the fact that they are played up as like the epitome of chaos a lot of times in D and D. So people think about that and like, Oh, how can I make them chaotic and random? And it's like, you can do that too, but also they're just worried about making sure there's more slod and they make sure there's more slod by making sure there's less of you. <laughs> <laughs> Next up on my list are the Rakshasa. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I mean, of course, I'm I'm a cat lady, so <laughs> I appreciate anything that looks like a, a, a giant cat. But when you dig into what the Rakshasa are and how they operate in the, the game world is they're terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's like they are creepy and terrifying. And the last time I faced one, I was playing a sorceress. So there was not a whole lot I could do because, <laughs> you know, my support spells are almost non-existent and I couldn't hurt it with magic. <laughs> you can't hurt it with magic, so it, but it can hurt you with magic. So <laughs> I, I think I ended up using polymorph to turn into uh, something just to hit it occasionally. Every time I have seen a Rakshasa used in a game, I am on edge and I am ready to be to try and run the other direction because they are scary. I kind of like the idea that the way they get played up is that they are masterminds with the long view and the, you know, like in the D and D cosmology, they live in hell around devils and they just kind of live outside of devil society and don't get caught up in devil politics, which is scary because they're learning all of this stuff and, you know, figuring out how to manipulate people and how to, you know, do all these things. And they aren't caught up by, you know, being obsessed with the blood war or anything like that. So they can just sit there and scheme for as long as they want to. <laughs> yep. In fact, the uh, the Rakshasa we fought in the City of Cal's campaign, he got away. <laughs> I expect him to come back. Mm -hmm. So what's next for you? Okay, so this next one, I love the monster. I looked this up on how you're supposed to pronounce this because I've always wondered ever since I saw them show up in the AD&D first edition Monster Manual 2. They are Varguils, which is V-A-R-G-O-U-I-L-L-E. These are the, the creepy monsters that are like the heads that have bat wings where their ears are supposed to be. <laughs> I, I would say as a kid in the 80s, I would have pronounced this Varguli and been wrong. I, that is my recollection of when I first saw them in the Monster Manual 2 myself. But I love the story behind them because basically they just like they will fly up and they will give you this kiss of death. And, you know, if you fail your save against it, your head starts to just rot away from your body. And then all of a sudden you sprout you know, wings out of your ears and you turn into one and your head just flies off of your body. And I love that. It is so creepy and great and <laughs> terrifying. And they're not like they're not a high level monster or anything like that. It's just the idea that if you what they can potentially do is horrifying. <laughs> Those are kind of in the wheelhouse of the, the the what I'm going to bring up next, because I'm not going to bring up a specific monster. I'm going to bring up a category. Undead. Mm -hmm. I particularly appreciate undead because they provide a challenge for every level or tier of the game. Yeah. You know, most people think undead, skeletons, zombies, those are just crunch all you want. We'll make more. But when you start digging into other types of undead, there's some scary, dangerous stuff there. Oh, crap. I can't remember the name of the ones that I had in. They were powering the um, the Titan Warforged. Oh, the Allops. Yes, the Allops. The Allops are scary if you dig into them and hit your players with them at the right tier of play. They're an endless well of awesome, scary monsters that you can easily fit into almost any game anywhere. There's no level of play where it doesn't seem right that a thing that came back from the grave is going to make a good opposition for your party. <laughs> it's easy to throw skeletons and zombies at folks, and, and those are totally fun, but they don't have the same level of scare as when you get into whites or alips or 
you know, mummies, you know, other things that can wreck your day. The other scary thing is like when your necromancer lich, you know, is going to summon a zombie and you're like, ha zombie. And then you realize that it is like the the zombified corpse of an ancient red dragon. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also had um, in the City of Cows campaign, we fought a zombie that was once one of our friends. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, that's you can you can hit your players hard mm-hmm. when all of a sudden you find out an NPC that they had a relationship with. I can't say I like this guy. He was a bit of a jerk, <laughs> but he was friends with one of the other PCs. Mm-hmm. So having him show up as a zombie guided by a necromancer telling it to attack us was like, oh, man, that's not cool. Oh, yeah. Well, I think for my next pick, I am going to say red caps. And <laughs> I love red caps because... To a certain extent, I think, especially when I was younger, like I grew up with the the 80s version of what people thought of, of fairies, where it didn't really go back to folklore near as much. And it was just like, oh, they flip from flower to flower and they're these little frivolous things or they fix shoes. Pretty sprites and pixies. Yeah, they fix shoes for shoemakers. And red caps were one of those things that got me to, you know, looking into, no, there were some really scary fae creatures. And Red caps are basically like the serial killers of the uh, of the fairy world. <laughs> I mean, they literally soak their hats in blood. This is <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, if you you really dig down into the origin of some of the the fairy monsters, then there's some scary stuff there and red caps are one of them. Yeah. Um the first time I think I used red caps against anyone, they were on a fairy road. And they were told, you know, whatever you do, don't step off the road because you don't know what's out there in the wild. And of course, one of my players stepped off the road. And that's what I had hunting them was red caps because, you know, they were just out there. They couldn't touch the road. But as soon as something went off the road, they could stalk it and murder it and dye their caps in their blood. And it was great. And I, I love the little nasty serial killer red caps. In my Dragon Heist campaign, I used red caps. So the whole mystery was that there was this weird stuff happening in a neighborhood in Waterdeep. Some of it was kind of, you know, like cute and and funny, and some of it was dangerous, and it all had this kind of fey fey wild magic to it. And what it turns out is there was in a park in one of the nicer neighborhoods there was a a rift to the fey wild. The Redcaps had been hunting Tressum, and so the Tressum flew in, you know, fled into the prime the prime material plane. And we're basically setting up home in this rich neighborhood and causing all sorts of weird little fey magic to happen. But then the red caps came through and it was starting to get darker and more dangerous. And, you know, so my players had to basically fight these red cap to to keep the neighborhood safe and protect the Tressum. And of course, my players adopted one of the Tressum kittens, because if you give your players a flying cat, they're going to keep it. That was like when I had an Almirage show up in you know my Saturday game, like you don't give someone a unicorn bunny and not expect them to adopt it. <laughs> yes. You, you give your players a cute, this is like the opposite of the scary monsters we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> and actually depending upon your players, they might adopt the scary monsters too. Yeah. Um, but if you give your players a cute monster, they're going to want to keep it. They're really, really going to want to keep it. We do have someone that has a uh, pet boy dragon hatchling. Yes. Yes. That's traveling with them right now in our party. <laughs> yes, we do. The other thing, though, that I, I like about red caps is it is something and I'm going to try and keep this tangent brief, but red caps remind me of something that I have always liked about Joker as a character before I got so burnt out of him <laughs> that I could go a couple decades without seeing him again. And that is 
Joker, when done really well, makes you laugh at him despite the fact that he's doing something really horrific because it's being done in an amusing way. Yeah. You know, I still, to this day, as serious as the movie is, and as horrible as it was, I love the pencil trick in uh, The Dark Knight. Oh my God, the pencil trick. (laughs) Because I was not expecting that. I can't watch that scene. I can't watch that scene. I'm just like, oh my God. Oh, goodness. I I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm moving on to something less scary. I'm going to move on to the Eberron monsters. (laughs) They're not less scary. Eberron has a collection of its own monsters to you know designed for that setting that are all based around various kinds of aberrations uh and there's two <laughs> i'm cheating i'm putting two on one bullet point there's two that i want to call out the delkir and the quarry the delkir are the the lords of zoriat the shapers of flesh <laughs> they are fantastic <laughs> big bads for your campaigns they are high level high level monsters but they are the types of things that are manipulating things in the background. And they are terrifying because they are the ones that if they are able to get out of Kyber, they're going to wreck some things. Uh, and then the quarry are also aberrants, but they are from Delcor, the region of dreams. They're just twist and feed on nightmares. Ancient, ancient history are the Delkir doing their thing. And then, Less ancient history, but still ancient history, are the quarry mm. messing things up and causing things. And um, the quarry kind of control a whole continent uh, of humanity. And there's some creepy monsters that can lean into the creepier pulp side of Eberron that I love. And that's not even getting into their minions. So I- I'm going to sneak one in just because you mentioned like Eberron aberrations. So like I thought, wait a minute, I have to give an honorable mention to these. One of my favorite things in the Forgotten Realms has always been the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh are this, they're speaking of things that are easier or not easy to describe when they're creepy looking. They basically look like funnels. <laughs> and at one end, they have a mouth surrounded by four arms. At the end of it, they have a tail that can inject eggs. And all along their sides, they have eyes and spikes. There you go with those eggs again, Jared. <laughs> and. The whole the whole thing with the Pharaoh is that they eat magic. The reason that the Netherese Empire was actually on these floating cities was to get away from the Pharaoh. <laughs> and the Pharaoh eating magic is what turned Anorak into the giant desert that it is. And I love this, that this is like such a important part of the Forgotten Realm setting, but nobody ever really directly uses Pharaoh for much in Realms Adventures these days. But I always really love those things. And the other thing that's just, you know... The other thing was back in back in the old days when someone would say, well, what's Elminster doing that he can't you know, deal with things? Well, the Ferrum used to be statted out as like 22nd level spellcasters. So like if one of those things break breaks loose from their prison under Anorak, it's like um <laughs> Elminster's going to be a little busy. Yeah. So I mean, that was kind of one of those built in things where it's like these this is what they deal with at, at their level. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so the last one on my list and and this comes with a caveat because I said before it shouldn't just be a thing that's like physically dangerous, but I'm going to put this on there because these guys should be scary for your players. Dragons. Oh yeah. Dragons should be scary. They are powerful. They are usually pretty smart. The older ones are they got a lot up their sleeve. I recommend that you find ways to work dragons into your game so they're not just 
a threat that never comes to play at the table because mm-hmm. I, I've referred to this before as your good China. <laughs> you know, yeah, you can have the good China and talk about using it, but unless it ever actually comes out on the table, who cares? Yeah. You can say this game is Dungeons and Dragons, but all I've ever seen is a dungeon. Where's the dragon? <laughs> so you really want to work the dragons in there and they should be a challenge for your players. Yeah. This can be difficult to manage with the way CR works and all of that, but when done right, dragons are scary. Oh, yeah. They should be a threat to your players. And I think the other thing about dragons that's always kind of got me is, you know, from the time I read The Hobbit on, that's like a template for a dragon encounter for me because you have someone that is terrified of this dragon. He's not going to fight it, but the dragon will sit there and banter with him for a while. And you're just thinking about this poor guy that's sitting there knowing that this dragon could kill him at any moment. But the dragon is, you know, a little bit upset, but not, you know, he's more curious than annoyed. And I just love that kind of interplay of dragons just kind of, you know, playing with their food, basically. Because as I've said many times, <laughs> dragons are just giant fire-breathing cats. They really are. And, and <laughs> if you know anything about cats, you should be afraid of cats that are big enough to eat you. The last one I was going to bring up are, I was trying to think of different kinds of undead that make you scared because they do a thing to you and you could turn into that type of undead. And I was trying to think, what is the creepiest personification of that idea of you know you have this time limit before you turn into this dead thing in front of you and sometimes it's you know i failed the save so you know tomorrow morning when i wake up i'll turn into this but i think the thing that really gets me is the spawn of caius and the spawn of caius if you have never seen them before oh my gosh uh spawn of caius is basically a zombie that is filled with little green worms So the spawn of Caius itself does not turn you into undead, but every time it hits you, some of these worms can fall off onto you. And if one of them burrows under your flesh, eventually it turns you into a spawn of Caius. <laughs> and I just love these things because this is such a, a visceral, horrific indication of like, I don't want to turn into this thing. Ew, this is gross. Like, not only is it gross because it's an animated corpse, but it's also crawling with green worms. This is terrible. <laughs> I think we should give an honorable mention to Mind Flayers. Oh, yeah. Especially with um, Baldur's Gate 3 out Mm -hmm. there and this being, this is not spoiling anything for anybody. If you've seen the trailers, you know this. Um, It being a major plot point of the first part of the campaign Mm -hmm. is all of these characters have a little thing in their head that's going to turn them into a Mind Flayer if they don't figure out something to do about it. Mm -hmm. Mind Flayers are scary to begin with. If you roll badly enough, they just got to eat your brain like it's some caviar or something. But that whole aspect of them is also pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. There's also the weird thing that if a tadpole doesn't cause seromorphosis in a humanoid and turn it into an illithid, it grows into a gigantic worm (laughs) that just like haunts the Underdark. So it turns into this big Lovecraftian underground tentacled worm thing. And even other, you know, even illithids are like, no, we have to make sure all these tadpoles are accounted for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so moving on, <laughs> what monsters in D&D should be scarier but aren't? I think, first off, anything that is a fungal creature should be scarier than it is. And the only reason I say this is spores like get all over you, especially if you're talking about big, huge, you know, man-sized animate fungal creatures. The, the idea that this is going to sink into you and you can't get rid of it 
really should feel creepier than it does. Yeah. The reason this is top of mind is, you know, we just had The Last of Us on HBO not too long ago. The idea that fungus is going to end the world is actually kind of a scary thing to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fungus should be scarier, but it sometimes comes off as a little goofy because you end up with these little mushroom-headed men running around. And I love myconids, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm going to call out doppelgangers because these guys should be absolutely terrifying. And I'm sure some GMs make them terrifying because anybody who can make themselves look like somebody else uh, and just slip into your party should be terrifying. But I think this is going to fall into the, 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 the problem that a lot of monsters that should be scary have is they're too well known by the D&D community. It's hard to have a doppelganger live up to its potential without doing a little bit of railroading or mm-hmm. splitting the party and telling some people in the party things that you don't want them to share with other people. And all of that is more trouble than it's worth. But yeah, that idea that, you know, this can look like anyone. Yeah. And I've actually seen doppelgangers kind of end up a little more sympathetic in some games lately where you've got a community of them trying to just live their lives and getting hunted out because they're. They're doppelgangers. They can take over and, blah, blah, you know, like the scrolls. Mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. I mean, this is Jared and I, we are talking, we're going to reference superhero <laughs> stuff. That this is, is only the second or so third far, time this episode. Yes, this is, this is only like the second reference, yeah. I think. So. <laughs> so, but doppelgangers should be scarier than they are. I agree. I think large animals should be scarier than they are. <laughs> One thing that has been a, an ongoing issue that I have with certain animals in D and D is it almost feels like, most animals are designed so that by the time you're third level, they're not really a threat anymore. And it just feels weird to think that, you know, I've been adventuring for two months. I am a third level character and I can go solo a bear. <laughs> <laughs> a bear that is angry at you should be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Even a normal mundane bear should be terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you tack on the dire, fa- you know, yeah. c- category to it. And like these should, these things should be treated a little more with a little more respect yeah i mean i was just talking not too long ago to someone and um i knew someone that had an elk at their farm that they kept in a pen and that thing was very majestic but it was also like i cannot believe this thing is this enormous like it is just you know it is awe-inspiring to be that close to something like an elk that is that big yeah ask anyone who's who's driven down a road up in canada or maine and seen a moose Nature's tanks. <laughs> um, my next one are trolls. Trolls should be scary. They're big. They regenerate. But again, it falls into that category of anyone who's played D&D for any length of time has fought a troll. They know what a troll is. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to play that I don't know that fire is what you want to use against a troll. Yeah. It's it's tired. I, I'm just tired of trolls. I don't mind fighting trolls. You throw trolls at me all day. That's that's fun. But mm-hmm. but don't make me pretend that I don't know what a troll is. Yeah. And I get people are going to be like, Ange, you want to play what your character knows and your character doesn't know. How come my character doesn't know? Trolls are so damn common <laughs> that there should be folk stories going around. like, oh, trolls are bad, but you throw acid or fire on them and that saves. that's what's going to save your butt. Because that's what a lot of folk stories were about is like the things you needed to do to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So like. Like, let's 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 kind of respect the culture a little bit. If trolls are so damn common that we're fighting them at third level. Come on, man. <laughs> Let me know that fire is what I need to do. Yeah, I mean, it 
it is it is hard for me to argue that oh you shouldn't tell people what their weaknesses are when you have setting elements like the outer wall of Waterdeep is referred to as the troll wall because it was erected during the troll wars when people in the north were fighting lots of trolls <laughs> like yeah. this is a natural thing that is part of you know history in the north is that there was this huge uprisings of trolls that just came up out of the swamp and started eating people and we're going to build walls and throw fire down on them <laughs> yeah the next thing that I'm going to say, I think they are scary, but I think as far as official D&D goes, they are relegated to a smaller niche than they should be. And that's hags. I completely agree with you. When I made that night hag for our campaign, I built a greater night hag. I took night hag abilities, but then kind of measured it versus a higher CR to build her up because night hags have all of this great lore behind them. And they're like CR5 creatures. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like there needs to be bigger, juicier hags or like greater versions of some of the existing hags. I've used hags and faced hags uh, several different times over the last few years in D&D games. And the last time I remember being scared of one was in the City of Cowl's campaign where we fought the hag who was the source of the blight that was poisoning the land. Mm hmm. She was scary. That was a tough fight. But again, the GM very specifically had to tailor her so that she was a danger to our characters. Mm -hmm. If we just had in um, Scott's Undermountain campaign, when we were doing a kind of little off shoot from he's from the Golden Vault, mm -hmm. where we fought some hags. And that was like a cakewalk. Now, admittedly, he let one of the players get off a purple worm poison on a hag oh, and he yeah. did like he did like 80 and this was the rogue so it was he <laughs> was a rogue he had the poison damage he critted he did like 80 damage <laughs> on a hag it, like he took out a hag in one hit broke the you know broke the coven mm -hmm. made the rest of it but it was a cakewalk after that and the night hag in your game was like she was tough but i know you had to build her up yeah, and it's really funny because if you look at like the lore around hags, you have the D and D you know CR five ones, and then you have like Baba Yaga, who is basically like this you know godlike, uber powerful archfey, and nothing in between. <laughs> yeah, I just think there definitely needs to be more hags at more tiers of of uh, play there. Yeah, my next one was going to be hags too. So you go, you go again. <laughs> Uh, my other one, I think, is interesting because I don't think people try to make them scary, but I think it's also one of those things where people make assumptions, too, and that is Celestials. If something from heaven that is glowing and can strike something down with a word shows up, adventurers should probably be a little bit more scared of them. But this is one of those things that's bound up in a lot of D&D &D assumptions where people are thinking, oh, it's probably lawful good, so it's not just going to randomly you know, kill people and you know, not thinking... This is this immortal thing that is, you know, one step below being a god and it could glare at me funny and I would literally start burning my skin off. <laughs> I just I think I mean, it's one of those things that I believe some of this comes from watching Supernatural for a long time. But I mean, you know, they do things like if they, you know, on that show, like if they actually speak with their true voice, like, you know, your head could explode like. These are things that I kind of associate with Celestials from other media that don't get translated as much into D&D &D where they're just sort of, hey, we might show up and there might be a misunderstanding. So you have to fight them briefly or you might summon them to kick somebody else's butt. 
<laughs> you know, I I don't have anything specific to call out, but again, I'm just going to say there are a lot of there are a lot of monsters in D&D that should be scarier than they are, but because they're they're tropes, mm-hmm. they just they don't they don't have the impact they should. Yeah. Sometimes you can get around this by finessing what you do with them, but you got players who are experienced with D&D, they're going to know some of this stuff and they're just going to like roll up into it no matter what their character knows. So Yeah, it's kind of interesting because when you look at like the the folklorishness of things, heroes the first time they run into something, even if they're wary of it, they're not really scared of it. But then on the other hand, you're thinking if I just went out for my first day on this job where I decided I was going to be an adventurer, and I see like skeletons walking towards me. I'm not thinking, oh, if I hit this thing with a mace really hard, this won't be that hard. I'm thinking that's a dead guy and it's walking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dead person that just got up. What? That's not I don't like this. Um, I think one of my last things that should be scarier is the Tarrasque. And we, we should point people towards, you know, like John's book because. <laughs> yeah. Our good friend through Encoded Designs wrote the book of the Trask, but I will just say that the Trask is always kind of played up as this apocalyptic beast that only shows up, you know, once every however long. And when it shows up, it, you know, all these portents of doom. And I think it, it turns into like sometimes people think, oh, this is that thing that I can beat to prove that I'm epic level, not <laughs> this thing might be heralding the end of the world. And I almost wish that there were like all of these signs and portents that would happen when the Tarrasque shows up. Like, you know, it is, it is night for 30 days and it is, you know, there's a thunderstorm that will flood this, you know, I kind of want some of those apocalyptic things to accompany the Tarrasque, even if the Tarrasque itself doesn't change that much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So what monster would you least like to encounter as a player? (laughs) So as a player, I would not want to, encounter Vecna. (laughs) (laughs) I know that sounds dumb, but I'm going to say specifically because I have seen like the fifth edition stats for Vecna as a GM, I kind of want to run him someday. And as a player in a fifth edition game, I don't want to deal with him. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is completely, completely fair. (laughs) Um, For me, we're about to face a whole bunch of demons or devils (laughs) in the city of Cowl's game because we kind of, Ended on a cliffhanger with the gates of hell opening up to the prime material plane and us fleeing <laughs> to one of our characters' uh, celestial homelands to basically be like, help. So I have a feeling I'm going to see the worst of all the demonic stuff the game has to offer. Because Tristan is also very good at horror games, so he's not going to hold back on that type of stuff. Does Tristan own the uh, the fifth edition Book of Fiends that Green Ronin put out? <laughs> I'm not sure. I may need to make sure he knows about that one. Yeah, there's some interesting different fiends in there. Speaking of (laughs) apocalyptic things. Yeah, yeah, it's an apocalypse, so we may not save the world. I certainly (laughs) hope we save the world. I had plans for my character. (laughs) (laughs) I want to save the world. I live there. (laughs) Yeah, I live there. That's where my stuff is. I don't want to lose my stuff. So what monster would you least like to encounter as a person? All right. So I am a person with lots of anxiety, so it was hard to narrow down to just two. But one of them is I get vertigo terribly if I see large things that make me, you know, rethink perspective. And I have noticed this, for example, when I look at mountains, when I've gone out east with uh, my wife to the East Coast, like 
I will start feeling vertigo if I look at a mountain and realize how enormous it is. So anything that is like that kind of Titanic size where all of a sudden you're just like, I am a fly speck compared to this thing. <laughs> just, you know, it, it kind of makes my stomach drop out. And then the other thing is my, one of my other great fears is drowning. And there are so many monsters in folklore and in various forms of D&D where it's like, hey, come close to the water. And then they grab you and pull you under the water and you can't get out. For example, like like the Kelpie in uh, D&D. And I would hate to run into something like that because I cannot handle even the thought of having my head virgin water. <laughs> you know, I looked at this question and I was like, I, I don't want to see any monster in person. <laughs> There's a reason I live in a little house in suburbia with my cats and I have my friends come visit because I don't want to go on adventures and see monsters face to face. Sound like Bilbo. As a thought exercise, I'm, I'm with you on the gargantuan things, not necessarily from the vertigo perspective, but because I occasionally have <laughs> dreams, or I guess you could call them nightmares, where kaiju suddenly <laughs> show up and they're in the distance and I see them destroying things and i'm like crap i need to go someplace else and i don't know where to go because that thing is very big and one of its steps can take it several <laughs> miles so what the hell am i gonna do where's my jaeger <laughs> yeah, where's my jaeger where's my jaeger the other thing is anything that would make me not who i am like so all of those things jared keeps talking about about planting <laughs> eggs and worms and tadpoles that turn you into something else is like that's a that's that's a thing. I don't know. I don't want that. No, thank you. And I think now that we turn this into something where we were both bringing up things that are personal personal issues, I would like to stress once again: make sure that your players are okay with the things that you introduce in your game, because by the time you listen to this, it'll be the end of the Halloween season. I've been watching horror movies all <laughs> month long to stay in the spirit of things. But the thing is, there is a limit. There are certain things, even as horrific as some of the things I watch are, there are certain things I will not watch. And it's not that so much that they're worse than other things. It's that they are triggers for me that I can't even enjoy. I can enjoy watching someone's head explode, but there are certain types of horror I cannot, you know, I can't watch. And that's even less gory than a head exploding. We are long past the days where it's cool to put spiders in your game because you know somebody is afraid of spiders yes you should be doing the opposite <laughs> yeah that is not cool we don't we want this to be fun for everybody and sometimes it's fun to be scared but we don't want to take it to a level where we're causing somebody actual mental harm yeah so have your lines and veils discussions have active safety tools at your table so somebody can tell you in the moment if something is is actually uh, getting to them. Make sure you're being safe at the table when you're running scary monsters. Yes. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. In our downtime research segment, every episode we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to you, our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, podcasts, but it's always going to be something we think will enhance your D&D experience. Hey, I went to a con and it was awesome. <laughs> and I bought actual physical dice. Um, they are pretty and orange and white and they have cats on them. All of them have a cat on the side that is the highest number. So the 20 on the D20, it's a cat. The six on the D6, <laughs> it's a cat. The 12 on a D12, it's a cat. They are awesome. Um, they're from a company called Black Oak Workshop. They do have a website. We'll have a link in the show notes. 
I very specifically, for reasons, got a set from their Kitty Clacks line, but they have a bunch of other sets with other neat designs on them. There's skulls and dragons and other such things. Because I bought a set, they let me pull one die from a a pot that they had. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also got a D20 that has a dragon on it. And they're very cool. I always wish I had more money to spend in dealer's (laughs) rooms at cons, but I, I... I very much like this set of dice. They they have been kind to me so far. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I actually have some uh, Black Oak uh, dice that I got at Game Hole Con one year. And I will definitely uh, attest to that. And I like because they're, they're also a little bit bigger than normal, too. So they have some heft to them. Yeah, they're a little larger. I like it. I got I got the skull ones because that was when I was running my Grave Cleric. So I thought, you know, this this is on theme. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, those are really nice dice. And like I said, I like dice that are just a little different than the normal ones. So like the fact that they're just a little bit bigger and heavier is kind of nice. Yeah, they're they're a little bit bigger and heavier. The the I mean, they're not as heavy as metal dice or anything like that. No. And I like the font design on them. And Oh yeah, the fonts are great. The symbols are done really well with the cuz like most dice sets like this you'll see just have the symbol on the D6. Maybe on the D20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one is designed very specifically so that it is all on the best number on the die. I've already mentioned Worlds Beyond Number, which is a D&D actual play podcast featuring a long form campaign run by Brennan Lee Mulligan with Abria Iyengar, Eric Ishii and Lou Wilson. But if you have not backed their Patreon at this point in time, you have the opportunity to look at the witch class that Erica has been playing using for Ami, her character. And full disclosure. One of the designers of the witch class is friend of the show, Brandon Stoddard. And I am more than willing to say that he is a great D&D 5e designer that you may know from Season of Adari or his adventure in Candlekeep Mysteries. So I would say um, go on there and become a patron and take a look at the witch class that uh, that came out of that show. Very cool. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out. The Gnomecast. Several gnomes from Gnome Stew get together and talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. That show sounds really cool. It sounds awesome. (laughs) I I think the people who make it are fantastic. We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. 